we've been going through the letter of Hebrews uh, together, and I want to invite you to open up to the book of Hebrews, or letter, chapter number 10. The book of, letter of Hebrews, chapter number 10. We're going to begin reading this morning in verse 26, and I want to read uh, uh, the passage for us, and then we'll... Uh, go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to read down to verse 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord would judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Let's continue reading. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come, will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if his soul shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and persevere their souls. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of the cross. We thank you for the hope you give us. We pray that you would work uh, these thoughts in our hearts and souls through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Judas Iscariot. I'm not sure what thoughts come to your mind, but a name that is synonymous with betrayal. It wasn't always that way, or at least he wasn't thought of that way. One of the twelve, the privilege that he had received, which really makes his sin against Christ so much more, um, so much more awful to consider. Welcomed in to the congregation of that twelve close disciples, he was taught by Jesus and had the parables explained to him from the very mouth of Jesus himself. He saw the signs and miracles which Jesus did as Jesus walked on water and Peter walks out to meet him. And Jesus, by the power of his voice, calls the stormy sea to stop. And you know what? It stopped. Seeing the lame walking and jumping and leaping and seeing the blind people seeing at at the very word of Christ himself and seeing dead people not staying dead. Judas Iscariot, 
such privilege and, and, and such prominence that Jesus would send him, along others, out to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the area surrounding where Jesus was ministering. Trusted by his fellows so much that he was nominated to be the treasurer of the group. Hold the checkbook. In fact, in the upper room as he was in that intimate fellowship with Christ in the last hours before he was betrayed and crucified, Jesus tells the disciples, one of you will betray me. And they were all looking, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Even Judas said the same thing. But when he got up and left, no one thought to themselves, no, it's Judas. They thought, evidently, we need something for the feast. And, and he's gone to get it because he's got the money. That's who we send to do those kind of things. In one place, we read in the Word of God, Judas seemingly to be so concerned about the poor and the outcast that he wonders why we waste such, such wealth as this on this when it could be given to food to those who need it. And yet what we find at the end of his life, out of all the privilege that he had received, out of all the, the prominence that he had been given and being called to follow Christ, for the price of a slave, a little bit of silver, he betrays our Lord Jesus Christ. And so much, so almost in, in a, I don't even know how to describe it, that he goes and, and he, he seals that betrayal with a kiss on the cheek to tell the man, this is the one, come and get him. Now, there could be many motivations for that. Greed, as we come to think of it, I think the Hebrew writer is right. It, it demonstrated something in Judas, something in those who have sinned like him, not in the same capacity, there's only one of him, but, but like him to have been given so much privilege and so close to the kingdom of God and, and all of the blessings of God, and yet at the very end demonstrate the same sin and ultimate rejection, and that's what Judas did. The Hebrew writer calls it in Hebrews chapter 3, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Greed, maybe. But even at the bottom of that greed is the reality that he is not my Messiah. He is no Savior His rejection so blatant, so profound, so open that he would be complicit in the murder of the Son of God. And now his name forever etched in our minds, in society minds, even in the ungodly and the worldly minds as one who, one of tragedy, one of betrayal. Judas is scared. There's many like him, many sinned in his fashion, but I guess he stands in the forefront as we consider the idea of what most theologians have discussed and we have looked at before in our passage through the book of Hebrews, and that is the subject of apostasy. It is something that is praised in our day. If you follow Twitter accounts and blogs and Facebook and all of the other things that go on, enlightened men and women walking away from the faith they once held, uh, stepping away, no longer a Christian, that's great. No longer believing in the Bible, that's good. You finally got there with the rest of us. The notions of Jesus and sin and heaven and hell, all of that done away with will, will come along. That's fine. We, 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 we welcome you. 
to the world of the confused and the rest of society. And yet the Bible speaks to us and the Holy Spirit speaks to us very clearly and plainly and soberly and and throughout his word. It isn't just with the Hebrew writer, but but throughout his word and and these warnings that has been given to us that we've read in verses 26 through 31. The writer has already called uh, to mind for warning. This is the fourth warning that he gives to us that as he begins to speak about the blessings of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and what God has given us through the ministry of Christ and him dying on the cross for our sins and, and urging us along to believe and hold on to that. In, in the very same breath, he stops and It reminds us that the refusal and the rejection and the denial and the letting go of this gift has paramount, has tragic consequences with it. So we come to this passage being reminded in verse 26 through 31 that this business of Jesus Christ and all that we've been discussing in the book of Hebrews is serious business. Ness Sinclair Ferguson says, we do not do seriousness very well. Up to this point, we have been looking at the benefits of Christ and how he has died for our sins and become that propitiation, that great high priest work. And, and so he calls us in chapter number 10, we've looked at in the past few weeks, that because of this gift of this high priest and his sacrifice, then we're to hold on to our faith and, and we're to draw near to God and we're to fellowship and encourage one another to love and good works while it is today. To continue on in faith is the concern of the writer. And as you know, many of you that, that have walked through this and read this on your own, it is a, a message of joy. There is provision for the forgiveness of sin. And yet he must, he must deal with another kind of response to the gospel message. one of rejection and the expectation that awaits those who do it. Jesus drawing the same kind of lines in his own preaching as he finishes his Sermon on the Mount. Such a beautiful sermon, powerful, convicting. And then he gets to the end with no middle ground to go. And he says, there's either that narrow path and the narrow gate which leads to life or is the broad path and the, and the broad way which leads to destruction. And some of us, we go to a place and we like to order something in the middle. I don't want a small, I don't want a large. We want, we want something, just give me somewhere in between. And, and yet when it comes to this reality of heaven and hell, there is no middle ground. Further, he alludes as he concludes that sermon that it's like a wise man and a fool, one who hears these words of mine, believes them, and then, and then lives accordingly. And that's the wise man. And yet there is the fool who hears the words of God, does not believe them, does not heed them, and he is left for destruction. And as we come to this passage and look at it together, and I know it's a very sober opening and sober warning, but it's good for us to consider this for for the very reason that is the next passage. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews, and it would be odd if I started in chapter 11-1 this morning. At least two of you would ask me what happened. 
The rest of you would probably be glad because it's a very sober and somber word given to us, and I probably would be as well. But not only because it's the next passage, but because you and I need to learn to think long and hard about eternity. It lasts a very long time. And we live in an age where we're, we're so used to and, and, and we're able to dull our senses and dull our minds with, with a ton of distractions to where we can hardly think about the moment and the now. And then you come to a place like this and you're shaken up a little bit and you're called to, to think deeper than you probably normally would think. That is a blessing from God, a gift from the Holy Spirit to us this morning. Thirdly, we look at this because love itself demands we hear warnings before the disaster. That it might help some now to prepare for it. It is to the church he's speaking in verse number 26. We begin there with me. Look at it as he lists in his warning for descriptions of the kind of sin that he is warning us against. It is in connection with verse number 25 as he began to tell them the response of the gospel and encouraging one another and drawing near to God, holding on to our confession of faith in verse 25. But he speaks that there are some which have, have left the assembly. Some that have already made this decisive moment, this declaration that Jesus is no Savior of mine at this point. There's no regard and they walk away from the fellowship of God and reminds us of what John says in his letter to us, that they left us because they were not of us. And maybe it's a fear of others who are in the church or kind of weighing out the trouble that they're facing. And in the midst of that, it looks pretty good to go back to Jewish after all is given to us by God. The law and the sacrifices on all that. And, and so he speaks to them sharply as he addresses this situation. At the root of it, he says, If we go on sinning deliberately about after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. The warning he warns us again is a sin that is, as he describes it, deliberate. It's done openly, defiantly. It's not hidden. It's not an accident. It's not something you didn't mean to do. You just kind of tripped up on it. It, it, it wasn't because you had lack of understanding or any of those things. It, it is a deliberate, a deliberate sin that he's referring to. In fact, in the Greek, it is the very first word of the verse. Emphasizing this is what he has in mind. Those who would deliberately sin in the fashion which he's addressing. Numbers. He speaks about this in the book of Numbers when those who sin with a high hand towards God. I'll read it for you in chapter number 15 and verse number 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and the person shall be cut off from among the people. He will be sent out from among the people, considered to be cursed or an outcast. Verse 31 says the reason for this, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments, that person shall utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. That is a very sober warning. And this is the kind of sin which he's referring to here, this high hand, this deliberate sin against God. But not only does he speak of it in terms of its deliberateness, but he, he says this is a current state of action. Our English translation says here, verse number 26, for if we go on sinning, 
noting that there never has been a stop of this kind of sinning and there, there doesn't appear to be an end. It is a, a continuation of your life. Those who remain and continue in unrepented sin without putting to death, without ever fighting it, without ever dealing with it, that is a fearful thing, a fearful place to be. It's a continuous state. Verse number th- or the third point he makes about this sin is found here, that it is a sin in light of the truth. Notice he says that they receive the knowledge of the truth. Judas could not say he was ignorant about the kingdom of God or Christ or Christ's demands. He was there right next to him, heard all of his teaching. He's saying to these whom he's warning against, it's not because of ignorance. You've received the body of truth. You've understood who Christ is and his demands and the gospels could probably even reiterate it and teach it to others. This is, this is deliberate, willful, open rejection of the gospels, what he's saying. You familiar with the things of God and, and even warm to the things of God at some point in your life and come to a place where it's utter refusal and rejection of it. So awful we see this kind of action. We read in Romans 1 and 32 that though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them but give approval to those who practice to them Isn't that an awful statement? There is no excuse. There is no mistake. There is no denial. The writer is saying there is this warning, there is this danger that that having heard the body of truth, having heard the gospel message, having come to understand the, the joys and the blessings of heaven and the terror and the torment of hell, even in light of all that you've received, that there is this, there is this possibility that even at that point, some, if not many, will walk away in full rejection of the gospel. That seems to be what he's warning against. The passage itself has troubled many scholars, as you can understand, throughout church history. And now it just depends on who you read as how you might want to understand this kind of context. Some church followers, one I thought very interesting was thinking that here is God's word against those who have been baptized. And that if we sin after our baptism, then this is a condemnation for us. There's no more forgiveness. Then he recanted on that and says, well, maybe God will forgive you once. You get one get-out-of-jail-free card, but not twice. I don't know where he got the first uh, understanding of that passage. I sure don't know where he got the second understanding of that passage, other than the fact that he struggled with sexual sins in his own life, and he figures if he failed to it, then, then maybe God can be gracious. Others have come to understand this and, and, and brought about a certain kind of confusion that if if after having received salvation, after having been baptized into the church and, and all of that, if you go on and sin after that, then there is no forgiveness of sin in, in the sense that, that you're eternally lost. Or as Ed and I was talking today, others so confused because of the danger of this verse that, well, good thing is I don't ever sin anymore. Well, now you and I both know that's not true, right? You know I still sin. 
And I know you still sin because we're still in this flesh. What is he speaking about here when he's speaking about going on sinning? Well, there's something seen throughout the theme of the book of Hebrews. And, and look back, and I'll give you some verse reference to this. In verse number 3, or in chapter number 3, verse number 12, he, he tells the church to take care, brothers, lest there be in you any lest there be in you an unbelieving heart leading you, an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. At the very root of the the sin of the nation of Israel in the wilderness wandering is that they did not believe God. In light of all that God has done for them, they were still hard-hearted to Him. They still never received Him fully as their God. reiterate that in verse number 19 of that same chapter so we see that they were unable to enter in because of unbelief verse number two of chapter number four the message they heard did not benefit them speaking about the good news that came to them did not benefit them because they were not united by faith who with those who listen what is he saying He's saying they heard the word, they they heard the good news, they heard the promise of of the promised land and all that God would do for them, but it did not help them, It it did not deliver them, it did not bring hope to them because they did not believe it. Verse 5 and 6, reiterating that again and again in this passage, he said to them, they shall not enter my rest. They failed to enter because of disobedience. The sin in which that, that was manifested in their grumbling and complaining and the rebellions against Moses and God is because they did not believe God. It was unbelief. That was at the heart of their disobedience. And so naturally the writer over and over reminds us just another manifestation we find in chapter number 6 and verse number 11 to hold fast to their faith and we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He is warning the church there of unbelief, not believing the gospel, not resting and holding on the news that was delivered unto them by the prophets through signs and all the things that they had seen. It is as if they, they've gone so far and they're at a, at a threshold in their life and the, the writer's calling them to come full into faith and not give way to disbelief, to unbelief. Now I know that is a message for the world today. We call people to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ, but that's a message to the church as well. To those of us who come in week after week. It is a a gospel message to many who remain unmoved and unrepented and yet still familiar and close association with the body of Christ and the things of God. There is a difference to be in the church, associated with the church, and still not trusting in Christ as your Savior. And I want to say this just lovingly as I can. It is a terrible thing to consider. The thought of hearing the gospel repeatedly over and over and being warned of what it is to meet God outside of Christ and told over and over of the blessedness 
of what it means to be inside Christ and yet remain in this state of disbelief, of rejection. It isn't the messenger that you reject. It isn't the denomination that you reject. It isn't all the other things that you think that you reject. It is God himself that you've said no to. And that's what he's concerned with and dealing with. Jesus speaks about the same thing of the people in his day as he uh, tells them in Matthew chapter number 11. Verse number 17, giving this illustration, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Demonstrating the the soberness of John the Baptist's message in the ministry of Christ, neither one would move them towards God. Neither one of them led them to repentance. Now let me just say a word to some of you young people in here this morning. In a time of your life, maybe you have not made convictions of your own. You've heard what your parents believed. You've heard what this church believes. Where we stand. Maybe even friends. What the Bible says, even as we read this clearly. And let me just encourage you this morning. Do not be deceived that you are safe just in and of that itself. That is a blessing that millions across this world do not have. To be brought so near to the light and to the truth and to the, to the eternal blessings of heaven and eternity. That is a blessing beyond compare and you may even despise in this moment. Do not be deceived that you are safe. Because if you have not believed, if you do not trust Christ, even now this moment then the Bible says to take care lest this be your situation and full rejection in the light in which you have received full rejection of the Son of God. And we will go on and see what awaits those who do that. Now others, you here may have lived some time upon this earth. You've heard the old story over and over and you're waiting for something else. Maybe a sign, maybe a show, maybe... Maybe a riding in the cloud, whatever it may be that you're waiting for. I remember telling a missionary one time, he was asking me to come to a prison ministry. And I said, well, God, I'll have to drop a, a note with a rock. A rock with a note on it says, join the missions for prisons or whatever it was. The missionary who was in good sport at lunch threw a rock at me. With a note that says, join Rock of Ages immediately. <laughs> I told him God didn't write in his handwriting, so. Well, let's just be honest a little bit this morning. You've heard the joys, blessings. And I just be honest, as a pastor, that is so much more pleasing and appealing to the mind to contemplate than the dread of hell itself. But I would be assured there's some, maybe some even here this morning, uh, not, to, not to just presume upon where you stand before God, but there's some of you, even this morning, that has not only heard the joys of heaven and the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, but, but you've heard, at least seen a sign, a, a glimpse of the terrors that await those outside of Christ. And there's nothing else to say. 
only to urge and call and, 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 and just plead with you that, that if Christ is not enough, if the gospel is not enough, if the fact that he came and died a death for sin, like the sin that you now are living in and your pride and your self-sufficiency, if that is not enough to turn you to repent and believe in him, then nothing else will work. And I don't say that means spiritedly. What I'm saying is that, the, that he is communicating, given to us this word, and is the power of God unto salvation. And the reception of that is to, to believe and to draw near, and, and the rejection of that is it's disaster. It's a disaster. That is his concern. You see that in verse 27. Look at it with me if you would. We've already seen the tone of judgment earlier in verse 27 of chapter 9. As he has reminded his listeners and he has reminded us that it is appointed for man to once die or to die once. After that comes the judgment. There's not a person in this room that will escape that meeting. There's not a person that is exempt from that. And that's a sober thought. But notice as he begins to heighten his exhortation in verse 27, he says, he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That in itself is a judgment. But he says in verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. There's no other way to reiterate what we've said in the beginning of this. It is a serious business, this thing about heaven and hell, about the gospel. It would do us good, both saved and unsaved alike, to take notice and be careful what we've done with it. It reminds us of the kind of judgment which we face. As he says, it is a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, many of our minds automatically, at least mine. It goes to the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah. Nothing left. Judgment upon all the inhabitants. All that was there, none remained. Over and over, the book of Revelation, that picture of fire and God's wrath being poured out on his enemies, on his adversaries. And, and really, even in our text here, being lifted, as some understand from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 11, where Isaiah writes, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. And I can just say that is the case this morning. We don't know when Christ will come back, but we know God is not passive. There will be a day when he will come and he brings great reward with him and great trouble. And he says, Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. And Jesus likewise spoke of the, of the trouble which befalls those outside of him, those who are unbelieving. In many places, but one vivid picture reminds us most clearly, I think, and that's in Luke chapter 16. Many of you know the story of Lazarus and the rich man. I won't recount it for you this morning, but the Lazarus and the rich man both die, and the Bible says that the rich man in hell, he lifted his eyes, being in torment. 
Now think about that. You know it's not because he was rich. It's because he did not believe God. He was an enemy of God. In hell he lifted his eyes and the Bible says he pleads with Abraham that Lazarus might come and take the tip of his finger and dip it in a, in a cup of water. Stick a drop on his tongue. Why? Because he's in torment in the flames facing the wrath of God. And dear friends, I just remind you again what we read in the book of Revelation at Christ's return. As he comes back, it says in verse number 15 of chapter 19, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. The writer is warning them, those who are continuing on in their unbelief, unmoved by the gospel, those who openly and willfully reject the gospel, that there's, a, there's an expectation at the return of Christ, but not like the blessings and the hopes that others have. And he heightens this by declaring what they themselves become. Not just neutral to Christ, and the gospel, not just neutral to Christianity, they are his adversaries. Notice what he says at the beginning of this, that will consume the adversaries. They are enemies of the cross and enemies of Christ. And God will deal with his enemies. Now he says the reason for this judgment is set here in verse number 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, if that's the case, if those who violated the law of Moses, those who sinned against God in that way, and, and whether it was murder or adultery or many of the other sins that required the death penalty, he says, how much more should they anticipate at the hand of God than those who've sinned against his own begotten son? Look in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be delivered by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? Isn't that a very, very sober thought? He says, in your rejection of Christ, it wasn't that you, you've gotten better and you've received so much more by the world's standards. He says, what you have done in the process is you've completely disregarded Christ at all. Just as if you had denied the Father and His free gift to us, so you've denied Christ and His person, His preciousness, the very Son of God, the very image of God incarnate. And you said He is nothing. Something to be trampled over, a blasphemer, a, a would-be prophet, a, a whatever you want to call Him, a, a joke or a clown or whatever the world wants to say is in your denial, in your rejection, you have disregarded Him altogether. But not only have you disregarded Christ and, and his person, but notice he says you have profaned the blood of the covenant. He said, it's just an unclean thing to you. Who cares? He died on a cross. Big deal. It's a far cry from the old hymn, isn't it? How precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. He 
It says in your denial and your rejection of him, Christ himself becomes nothing to you. His blood becomes that which is profane, that which is disregarded as nothing, as unclean, as common. And he even further goes on, you have outraged the spirit of grace, speaking of the Holy Spirit. You've sinned against the whole God here. Why is there such a judgment awaiting those who disregard God and reject the gospel, even those who have had such access and such, such familiarity with what the Bible says, especially those, he says, because you have taken everything that is given to you, meant to be precious and to save your life, and you have, you have made it a, a disgusting, nasty, wasteful thing. An adversary of God. It's almost unfathomable to consider and he emphasizes this further and we'll by concluding the reason for such judgment. He says in verse thirty one, look at it with me. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. As one writer has stated it, I think, very well, that it is a fearful thing because he is a living God, not a tree, not a rock, not a bygone era of some mystic idea of who God might be, but the very sovereign, almighty, holy, living, magnificent, consuming God. And he said it is a very awful thing fall into the hands of him. Jesus reminds us even of this and somewhat when he speaks about the stone which he is and he says, oh, that is joy, there's blessedness, there's, there's hope if you fall upon that rock and be broken, but there is no hope if it falls upon you and grinds you to dust. The writer is saying, don't you understand that your rejection is met Met not with just the persecutors of this life. You didn't sin against people. It's a sin against God himself, which you must give an account for. He is alive. To reiterate that, he says in verse number 30, vengeance is mine. I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Words like this are meant to draw us and cause us to sit up and take consideration. What have you done with Christ? What have you done with the gospel? Where are you now? Are you believing at this very moment? I'm not asking you what happened 10 years ago in your life or, or what happened five years ago in your life. Are you now at this moment believing in Christ for salvation? Are you now trusting? Because that's what he's urging his people to do. There is a fearful expectation for those who, who deny him, those who walk away from him, those who fully and finally reject him. But he's saying that's not the expectation I want to draw you to and call you to. He says later on, he reminds us in verse number 35, what, what he's wanting and he desires of his people is that they would have a different kind of experience at the encounter of Christ. Notice with me, it says in verse number 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence which has, what does it say there? Great reward. And that's what sets before us. As Joshua said before his people, I said before you life and death. 
terror and blessings. That's what the Hebrew writer is doing here to the church. He says, this way leads to destruction. This way leads to damnation. And, and it leads to facing a God who will not be mocked. We will, we will reap what we've sown. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. But it is the same God that he calls us to, to embrace and reminds us that there are joys and blessings and rewards found at the gift of his only begotten son found in the gospel which he has given to us that which some have despised and that's what we read this morning isn't it first corinthians the sound of the preaching of the cross is foolishness it's folly it's a stumbling block but to those who are being saved is precious. It is the power of God. He gives hope in this uh, word of warning, and it's the same encouragement and hope that we take ourselves, and that is that we keep on believing, that we trust, that we follow through, that at hearing the word, at hearing what he has done for us, that we receive that gladfully and repentantly, and that we, that we follow on in faith. Not just at one point in our life, he says later on, but that we continue steadfastly believing and trusting in him and what he has done for us. Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. I love verse 39 as he brings us to a conclusion. He said, but we are not of those that shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. That's his concern. Is concerned that there are some there in the midst of them who are standing in a place just like this, in danger. In danger of rejecting the gospel, in danger of that root of unbelief manifesting in their life by ultimately walking away from Christ, proving that they were never truly in him. And while that is sober and that is kind of uncomfortable in some ways, it calls you to consider again, and I don't have no idea whether to say this, but, but it calls you to consider, are you believing in what he has done for you? There is no other way to be saved. There is no other hope. There is no other provision for forgiveness of sin. There is no other way to meet God in eternity other than in the provision of Christ himself. Because this same God who will judge his adversaries will welcome his children. And the only way we become his children is by being in Christ. The provision that he has so freely and graciously offered to us. And I would pray that you would see the urgency of that in your own life. And I would pray that you would rejoice. Because you know what? You and I, there's not a person in here that was not living on the edge of facing him. Having to give account of our own sin before you were born again. And while dwelling on on the dread of hell and eternity may not be the most pleasant thing. It makes the unbelievable joy of being saved and being in him and being forgiven so much more amazing and awesome. We could say what Paul said to the Corinthian church, such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been made new. And if you haven't this morning, I pray that you would. Even now in your seat, that you would just bow wherever you are and just... Ask God to forgive you of your sins. That Jesus Christ died on a cross 
to pay the penalty of your sins. And that if you would by faith call on him, repent of your sins, you would be saved. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your word, the soberness, the, the reminders, not only of dread, but God, of, of what you've delivered us from. So I pray, God, as we consider your word and consider your warnings, God, you will let it bear fruit in our lives. Your word will not return void. In Christ's name, amen.